two points this morning. One is that you are to consider Jesus, and the second is that we consider Jesus. You consider Jesus, we consider Jesus. And I'll explain what I mean there in a moment, but let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would, through the power of your spirit, open our minds and our hearts to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I I might refer to a few passages or or verses around this this section, the first six verses of chapter 3. So it's good that you have the Bibles there. We haven't done this since uh, before COVID. I've been thinking we, we, we should put the Bibles out again. And today was a good reason to do that since we didn't have the passage printed. Those Bibles are there for you. And particularly, if you need a Bible, please take one of these with you. And if you need a Bible and you want to take a Bible and you ended up with one of the ones that we've clearly had a long time and hasn't survived, well, find one of the better ones. Uh, the hardback ones are in much better shape. We need to get some more of those. Uh, you, you can, those are there for your benefit, is, is what I'm saying. If you need a Bible, please take one. Um, the, the first point here is that you are to consider Jesus. You, and there's a, there's a challenge here. You, think, think about Jesus. Reflect on who he is. And, and I, there's this recognition that I'm speaking in the context of a church, of a congregation gathered together as a, as a family. But there's a, a moment in which you are processing, a way in which you're processing as an individual, as a part of the group. You are thinking about what this means for you. And so there's a personal challenge here that that God cares about us as individuals, that he is engaging our individual hearts and minds, and so that we are to consider Jesus as individuals. So you, you may note that I'm alluding to the second point is that we consider Jesus, that there's absolutely a way in which we do that as a part of something bigger not just me and Jesus, not just as an individual, but we do this as individuals. We consider Jesus. And so these six verses, they talk about Jesus and considering him as better, superior to, greater than Moses. And Moses, so I'm repeating some of last week, was, was central to the way that they thought about their faith. And what it meant to be a follower of God, to be a part of the people of God, to experience salvation. Because Moses was this central character in in, in even mediating the salvation of God to his people. So Moses was the one who led the people through the power of God out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. So that we, we see when God gives the Ten Commandments, which are a pretty big deal, He starts by saying, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he's reminding, I'm I'm calling you into this particular kind of life, the Ten Commandments, right? But the foundation for that is the fact that he has brought them salvation out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. He He has delivered them. And he is saying again and again throughout the Old Testament and then now into the New Testament through Jesus that he is the God of their salvation, that he is the God of our salvation. So Moses is this central character in salvation. And they would have known, they would have clearly read this and recognized that they needed salvation. So they don't need salvation from Egypt, from slavery, but there is this clear call that Jesus is now a character, central character, with a central role in salvation. And again, this idea if there is salvation needed, 
there is a problem. There's something wrong. There's a clear recognition that they need salvation. So the readers, listeners, this first sermon letter from we're not sure who, they were, but it was to a group that was clearly rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. So we have a group of Jewish Christians here, and they're hearing this, and they knew fundamentally that they needed salvation. And, and this is often, for us, a, a sticking point. And sometimes we, we, we know in our heads that we need salvation, and, and, and yet we, we live as though we don't. Or we think that we, in our own power, can get what we need. That we can, we can be in control. But what we find here is that we have a slavery of our own, a slavery to sin and to death, and even the fear of death. So it, it's not just, not just about what is to come in the end, but the implication that that has for us now. So going back a couple of weeks to chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, there is this promise that Jesus saves us, saves us from death and the fear of death. So that it has incredible implications for us now and that we live our life, our lives in light of that which we know is coming, death. So even as we want to be in control, we are actually continually reminded that we're not. This line was helpful for me. Kelly Capek, a book, You're Only Human, which I recommend, says all of us bounce between the illusion that we're in control or the attempt to be in control, even if we aren't under that illusion, but sometimes we find ourselves under the illusion that we're in control, and we bounce between that and the world's demonstration that we are not. The world's demonstration that we are not in control, that we live our lives very much out of control, that we are limited creatures. And the story of scripture reminds us of that again and again, that we have a creator who has spoken and worked in our lives. And so as we find ourselves out of control, whether it's getting a text on a Friday night and knowing uh, this great plan that you had. It's excited to have Kyle Dickerson here. It was working out that African-American pastor preaching the first Sunday of, of Black History Month. Uh, and none of this in my control. I didn't have a sermon prepared. If I was really a control freak, maybe what I should have done is had a sermon that I prepared a long time ago in case something like this happened. I didn't. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, a reminder, I'm, I'm not in control. Um, I, I actually got another text last night. So I'm at the dinner, and we're celebrating with Seth's team and uh, spouses, and I get a text from uh, my oldest, Hogan, who has this... I, I, it was helpful that I know how she texts, right? Like, she, we joke with her about the fact that she will text, like, a word, and then another word, and then another word, like, are, are very short phrases. And oftentimes, it's like, you either have to wait for the explanation, or you uh, have to ask for it. Right? This is, this is normal. So that when I got this text, well, I'll give the context first. Our kids both live in Carter Hall. It's this big, it was built as a hotel. Uh, you drive into Chattanooga, you can look up on Lookout Mountain, and you see this really cool old building. This is their dorm. This is where they live. So Hogan on the third floor, Patton on the fifth floor. Name of it is Carter. And uh, Hogan texts me, what exactly did it say? Uh, Carter is on fire. That was the text. And she's off campus, and Seth is not looking at this family text thread, so I'm waiting for the explanation and more details. And there was a fire, apparently, that, that broke. And she even sent a little clip of uh, a curtain, 
like they evacuated the building and sprinklers went off, so there's smoke damage. And but they're in, they're back in the dorm. They stayed there overnight. Everything is fine. Everybody was fine. But you know, Hogan, Carter's on fire. Like, I don't know what this means. It's an old building. This could not go well, right? There's a chance it doesn't. And uh, these kinds of concerns, uh, I'm feeling certainly out of control. My kids, both of, uh, my older kids, six hours away uh, in a place. It's on fire. <laughs> I'm not in control, right? We're, we're continually reminded of this fact. And there are other ways uh, that we're reminded of this in this world. That, uh, that ultimately, that great one, that, that death is coming. Again, I, I, I referenced it incorrectly last time. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 recognize the fact that Jesus has come to demonstrate and work power over death, the devil, and the fear of death. He has that kind of power. But we're faced with that reality. So however much we think we're in control, we're not when it comes to death because, as I often note, the death rate uh, lately has been 100%. It's been that for quite some time. We'll continue to be that. Um, So it comes, no matter how much we think we're in control, And so we're reminded, I hope, that we desperately need something beyond us. And what we find here throughout the book of Hebrews is what we need is Jesus. What we need is him. And so we consider him because we're desperately in need of him. And here's what we believe as a church, and here's what's communicated in the word of God, is that this is 100% true whether you believe it or not. And so there are those of you here that are all in on following Jesus and you believe it and, and sometimes then struggle to believe it or struggle to live in light of it or, or act it out. That, that might be a group. And there might be some of you that are you're, you're curious or wondering and you, you don't believe it. And yet I, I want you to hear that what the claim is of, of Jesus in his life and ministry and the scripture and the church for the last 2,000 years, is that every one of us, whether we recognize it or not, is desperately in need of him. And we might turn to other kinds of things for hope or control or satisfaction, but they're going to let us down. They're absolutely going to let us down. And so we find here the warning that comes not to be let down, not to go that direction. So we didn't have Danielle read the last well, more than half of chapter 3, but it's this warning, maybe encapsulated in verse both 8 and 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. There is a danger, a temptation to not recognize need of Jesus and trust in him. But what comes is a failure to experience his promises. And we're going to talk next week about what some of those promises are. We talk every week about that on some level, but we're going to talk about it in more detail next week, the promises of what is to come. So there could be this question of how do we experience our need? What are the things that happen in our lives that, that reveal the need that we have? And they could be numerous. I mean, they could be something like uh, things that are happening in the economy now, or Dan talking about the fact that a thousand people in his company lost their, just, you know, show up on Tuesday and they, they have a meeting scheduled and they are going to lose their job, right? So that's a, a, a recognition of, oh, we have need. Um, the relationships breaking, 
demonstrate our need. Global concerns happening now. Uh, we, we sometimes think about those things and we recognize we're, we're not in control. I mean, just a few years ago, we couldn't imagine that we might find ourselves in a place where it doesn't seem unrealistic that, that war might happen between us and other major powers. We could name a few that, again, a few years ago, we thought, no, that would never happen. We're, not, we're, not, we're in a, a safer, better world. Everything just keeps moving and getting better, but we live in a broken place where there's great need. So what would it look like for us to more, as individuals, consider Jesus? To look to him to meet our needs. We talked about some of these before. This is, again, this, here's some just very practical stuff. What, what are ways that we can do it? Without being legalistic, like checking the box, okay, now God loves me. That's not the gospel. But it's because he loves me, I engage in relationship with him and I consider him because of what he's done for me, because he is the one who offers salvation, because he delivers me from death and the fear of death, from sin, from the deceitfulness of sin that we see in the second half of chapter three that comes from my own heart, James 1. All of that happens within me and I need salvation from him How do I look to him as a result of him providing it? Really simple. This may, probably not a surprise, read your Bible. We we provide the the daily prayer plan, which is just one way that we can engage that. There are are apps out there that could lead you through a a prayer plan. You could just pick a a book and and read it. Um, That's part of engaging who he is because it's a revelation of himself. And we could talk about all the mystery of the fact that God is the word, Jesus Christ is the word, and that combination with the scripture and God's revelation of himself, we see in chapter one of Hebrews, in the very beginning, those first four verses, that we have this greater revelation of God through Jesus, and he reveals himself through his word, the scriptures, we consider him by reading his scriptures, his revelation of himself to us. We engage in that relationship with him as we enter into prayer. I think for me, one of the, the great ways that with his, I think, feels like often this combination of the word and prayer. And I would always encourage you to start with the word and use it as a catalyst to prayer. But memorizing the word so that it's something that can, can ruminate in your head as you're going through your daily life and engaging him. There are all kinds of good podcasts to listen to uh, that that help us think about who Jesus is. Uh, there are great books out there and any number of topics that are out there that are like hot topics. It's amazing to me how often we are influenced and again, swimming in the water of, hey, here's the way that we should be thinking about this. Whether it's work or sexuality or global powers or all of those kind of things that are happening, we are just influenced in tremendous ways by little short TikTok videos or memes, it's, or headlines, right? And it's not often like one video, one little short video or one headline but is gonna affect us, but it's like, it just surrounds us and they come all the time and we're influenced by those things, but we would never take the time to like read a whole book about something that's really significant because we don't have time for that. And I'm, I'm speaking to myself here, even as a pastor, the, the things that just crowd out good opportunities to consider who Jesus is and what he would mean for us. The Sunday school that we're doing is just an amazing opportunity to consider Jesus and the implications of who he is and what his promises are for what is to come and the impact that has for us now. 
happened to miss it this morning because of uh, other things, but um, it's been awesome. And uh, I would encourage you to come uh, to that. And we have great Sunday school for the kids to consider Jesus and great teachers in there. Community groups, if you're not a part of a community group, this is a great opportunity to consider Jesus together in the day-to-day life. Would, would, you, would you think about, you know, grabbing some friends and studying a, a particular topic or, or studying a book of the Bible or another book about Jesus? Like, would we be that intentional? We're too busy, right? We, we, um, we think of often uh, self-care as uh, just turning everything off, right? Um, and and to, to be clear, uh, I have grown up in a time that, that dismissed self-care like in, in a world that both probably even in the church, maybe the church in particular, in particular, uh, prioritized extroverts and overworking, right? Like that was what was expected and you should uh, have this list of all the things that you should be doing as a faithful follower of Jesus. And that's not good. Like a, a thought toward self-care of being thoughtful about the way we engage is absolutely necessary. And yet it can also as is the case with so many things, move pretty quickly in the other direction, move toward a little bit of, uh, you know, um, Tom Haverford and Donna, treat yourself, uh, where it's just, I deserve uh, whatever I want, right? Whenever I want it. Uh, and, and rest and self-care comes, becomes just, you know, tuning out the world and, well, not really, because we turn on a show or a movie or something like that. And, let me encourage you to be thoughtful and intentional even about what self-care looks like and that actually considering Jesus is that. Again, please hear the tension that often comes there. I'm not saying that uh, self-care and rest or watching things is bad, but there's this call for something that is the greatest, that is Jesus. What does it look like to consider him? And what is our goal within that? So, I could say more about considering Jesus as individuals and we need to wrestle with that, what it looks like for us. But then there's this call that we consider Jesus. So it's not just you've got to come up with it on your own and figure it out. No, there's, there's something that is happening here as a family. Nothing is only, only as the individual. There's just no category for just me and Jesus in the scripture. It just It doesn't exist. Uh, it, it exists in spades today, even in the church, because we live in this hyper-individualistic, expressive individualism culture that the individual is the priority. And it is contrary, that, that idea is completely contrary to the word of God and to God's people and the way that he worked. We consider Jesus together, verse one again, holy brothers and sisters. That's this picture of the family where we're family members together. And so we, we do this together. You who share in a heavenly calling, and if you'll remember or note, almost all of the yous in the New Testament are really y'alls. I grew up in the South. They're really y'alls. They're plural yous. And we, 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 we miss it because you for us is both singular and plural. But it's almost always plural in the New Testament. We make it about me, and that's not what's happening here. So you all, you, the people of God, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus 
the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's our confession. It's not just my confession. It's our confession that we experience together. Verse 6, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, again, our, our, his house, that, that is the, the place we are together, the house, the people of God. There, there are passages in Romans and 1 Corinthians speaking of the fact that we are members of the body of Christ, the body together. And, and, and I've used this illustration before. If, if um, you were to come to me with a question about maths, um, I would, uh, I would say, I don't have the, I mean, I, I was in advanced math in ninth grade, but I would send you elsewhere. And if I told you, go talk to, you know, what you should do is you should go to the body of Adrian. Um, you, you would think, uh, Adrian is a, a maths teacher. He's, he's also British, so he says maths. Um, you would, you would know, you, you would think that's a weird way to say that. Go to the body of Adrian. Okay, weirdo. But you would know to go to Adrian. That there's this connection. Uh, Adrian is embodied, right? So Jesus is embodied in the church in this mysterious way. There's a, there's a sense in which the body of Christ has this deep connection with who Jesus is himself. And so we experience Jesus together, the body, the house. There, there's some, there are many passages that speak to this. First Corinthians Three verse 16 says, do you not know that you, and spoiler alert here, you is plural, you, the people of God, not just you as an individual, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, the people of God. And this is addressing divisions in the church and the need for unity. And then later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he's addressing fleeing sexual immorality, he says, or do you not know that your body, plural you, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you, the people of God, have from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And there is in there this, again, mysterious overlap between the way that we live as individuals and what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, the plurality of existing with one another. This has to happen together. Verse 13 we looked at, we spent more time with last week, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. It is called today as long as we're alive. Until Jesus comes back, today is called today. So every day, exhort one another, challenge one another, push into the lives of one another. We do this together. There's this fascinating verse, actually, in the passage that I'll be preaching next week, chapter four, verse two. There's this, remember, the warning comes to say, don't be like the Israelites back in Numbers chapter 12 when they're in the land of Kedesh and they have the opportunity to step into the promises of God and go into Canaan, into the promised land. They're terrified and they don't do it. And so they don't actually get the promised land or the rest as it's referred to. That's the warning that he's given already multiple times in chapter three. But here, verse two, weird language, but I think it, it shows us something. For the good news came to us just as to them, talking about the Israelites in, in Kedesh in Numbers 12. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They were not united by faith with those who listened. What's going on here? He's already said in other places, including at the end of chapter 19, 
that the problem was unbelief. They didn't believe. But he gives a different spin on it. It's not just that they didn't believe. One way to think about believing was being united with those who did believe in faith. That we're joining in with the people together. This is what we're called to, to do this thing together. We are not to do it on our own. And this flies in the face of expressive individualism that is, again, the culture in which we swim. That says, you do you. You figure out on your own what the right answer is. No, as a church, we figure out these things together. And we do it as a small church body. We do it as a denomination. We do it with the church throughout history. We do not do life with Jesus. And as a result, life on our own. We're made to consider him and experience him together. And we make a mistake. And we miss something powerful. We miss really what it is to be a Christian and to be a follower of him if we don't do it together. This is what we're made for, what we're created for. It, it, it's fascinating. There's some sense in which our, our culture tries to reject it but recognizes that it's really there. I recently watched the series, the Netflix series, Wednesday, um, which is uh, about Wednesday Adams. So it's based on the Adams family story. And uh, it's about her going to this boarding school, never... More, never more for the outcast kids. And it is fascinating how hard they try to talk about being your own person and standing up for who you are. And, uh, and, and yet part of the quirkiness of the show is that Wednesday Adams is all about not being like anybody else and not having relationships with anybody else and being a loner. Uh, that's part of like who she is, right? And uh, there's also a lot of it that plays out with her roommate Enid and be yourself and all these kind of things. But the beautiful parts that happen in the show are when they come together in relationship. And, and when they even in those moments sacrifice either some of their own desires or some of their own uh, things that they might choose by themselves in order to be in relationship. And those are the moments that as a viewer, you really do celebrate because we know that we need one another. We know that we're not created to do this alone. And, and it's not just being in relationship and nice with one another. It's actually stepping into the difficult things together. We need one another. So even as we think about a, a world and a culture that in my lifetime has moved from the church was the moral place. And, and there were plenty of people that said, I'm not doing the moral thing and I'm fine to reject that. Now, the story in our culture is that the church is immoral for all kinds of reasons, right? And, and we, could, we could talk about places where the church has it's not been good. And the church, is, the church has messed up. And we haven't either treated people well or we've allowed abuse to happen or we've covered things. There's, there's all kinds of, yes, let, let's, let's talk about that. Let's, that's one of the reasons we're doing grace, uh, the grace training, right? We don't want to perpetuate brokenness and sin. But this idea that uh, as we're in this world that is so confused and is changing so quickly that the question comes, how do we consider Jesus and his implications for our lives together? We do it together. We don't do it alone. In all of this, we are calling each other more and more to trust in him, to recognize that it's him. We're considering Jesus both as individuals, as, as a people together, we consider him because he is the only place where we find hope and confidence. Verse 6. He is our hope and confidence that is referenced 
But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, a part of his people. If we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope, who is our confidence? What is our confidence and our hope? It's really who? It's, it's Jesus. It's him. It's, it's, not, it's not us, our ability to do this together, our ability to consider him rightly, to get it all right. It's, it's Jesus. And we trust and we rely upon him. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is Jesus' body broken and his blood poured out, his sacrifice for us so that we might be saved from the deceitfulness of sin that is mentioned in chapter 3. That, that comes from within us and breaks and messes up our lives. The salvation comes from him. And so we consider him and we rejoice in him.